we're going to dive into the book of Ecclesiastes together. And as I was thinking through this passage, I think one thing that's true is that like it or not, we are all breathing this air of a humanistic worldview. And what I mean by that is that it's just the assumption out there that what you see is what you get. And so you'll hear people say things like, well, I know that there's a God, but the reality is there's some really hard things going on in my life. Or you'll hear people say things like, yeah, life is, um, is good, but the reality is I've got to pay my taxes. And, and so people's basic assumption, and all of us sort of breathe this air, and so this can become our, our worldview, like it or not, is that basically what you see is what is most real. And what we see in the Bible, and specifically in the book of Ecclesiastes, is we see this worldview being constantly challenged. And so sort of the lens that we're looking at Ecclesiastes through this morning is actually the lens of Hebrews chapter 11. So in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so what Hebrews does is it challenges this humanistic worldview that we have, and it says there's actually something more real than what we normally call reality. There's actually an invisible realm that is real, that is more real than what we see. And so kind of the big idea that's going to tie together what we're going to talk about this morning is that faith sees through the way things are to the invisible hand of God. Another way of saying that is that faith sees through reality to ultimate reality. So we're going to look at three realities that faith sees through. So the first reality that faith, faith sees through is faith sees through evil. We're surrounded by evil. It can feel like evil, injustice, and sin are ultimate reality, but that's not actually true. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, starting with verse 11, says this, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow." because he does not fear before God. So if you look out at the world, you may, might think the reality is people are getting away with evil all the time. And what Ecclesiastes says is the reason that people feel like they can get away with wickedness and evil and sin, the reason we feel like we can get away with things is because the sentence against our evil is not executed speedily. In other words, God is slow to anger. He doesn't want anyone to go to hell. And so he has allowed this world for a time to seem like it is a place of injustice where people get away with things. And what people do on the earth, us included as Christians, is we use that often as a license to do whatever we want. And that's not all there is to the story. It's almost like he just 
switches his train of thought. He's like, this is the way that it appears to be. But then if you look at verse 12, he says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. And then he says these three very powerful words, yet I know. So what's he saying with those three words of transition is he's saying, this is the way that it appears to be. This is the way that reality appears to be sort of from a humanistic point of view. Then he says, yet I know. So it's a statement of faith that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. So even though it looks like people are getting away with sin and injustice and wickedness, he says, yet he knows that there is a God and that God is just. So even though the sentence is not being executed speedily, he is saying the sentence will be executed. So he's like, basically, to, to use a quick analogy, it's sort of like that justice is like the sun. And right now, the sun is hiding behind the clouds, but the cloud does not make the sun unreal. It just means that the sun is hidden. And God's justice is in many ways hidden from view right now. But we can see that he is a just God by faith. And here's what I mean by faith. By faith, I don't mean a shot in the dark. I don't mean believe that it's true against all of the evidence. I'm asking you to examine a different kind of evidence. And what we believe as Christians is that God has given us evidence that he is real yet invisible through his word. And so here's the faith perspective on God's justice, on what is really true, even though it appears different than this. The evidence comes from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Romans chapter 1, 18 through 20 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying faith is actually a refusal to stop believing the lie. The true reality of the human condition is that we all know that we have sinned against a holy God, that we have done what is wicked, and that we are deserving of punishment because of what we've done. There is not a person on planet earth who in their guts doesn't know that they have done wrong and that because they have done wrong, they deserve to be punished. And so the only way to sort of get that knowledge out of your mind is actually to suppress it. So it's a knowing and willful pushing down of the truth about God and to focus on the fact that it feels like you're getting away with murder. 
You know, I once had a really interesting conversation with a guy. I was doing a missions trip to Ocean City, New Jersey, and we were on the boardwalk in Ocean City, New Jersey. And I was in a conversation with a guy about the gospel. And I was just learning about Romans chapter one at the time. And I started this conversation with this guy and he said, I don't believe in God. And I said, can I explain to you what the Bible says about your position? And I said, here's what the Bible would say to that. It would say that you've actually got a lot of sin in your life. And so sin is when we break God's commandments. And because of your sin, you actually know that you're guilty before God. And because you know that you're guilty before God, you have tried to push him out of your knowledge. You have tried to do away with God. So atheism is actually an attempt to get rid of the God that we know that we're accountable to. And I was really surprised by what happens next. I was a sophomore in college at the time. And this guy looks at me and he goes, you're right. I'm like, I am? <laughs> and, he's, and he says, yeah. And I said, do you mind me asking what you've done that's caused you to push the knowledge of God away? And this gentleman looks at me in the eyes and he says, yeah, I was in a gang in New York City and multiple times I participated in the murder of people. And so because, right, he's like, I have done what society would consider the ultimate wrong and what is an obvious wrong before God. And as a result of doing something awful that I know I'm accountable to God for, I have instead of facing up to the accountability before God, I have pushed the knowledge of God down. And so here's what the Bible would call this gentleman to do what it would call all of us to do this morning. To stop pretending that we haven't done wickedness in front of God and to stop pretending that we will not be held accountable for our lives. To admit that it is merely a feeling that people are getting away with murder on this earth, but it is not corresponding to truth. The truth is that there is a God and that we all know in our guts that he will hold us accountable for our lives. And so the call, this section, is to fear God. It's to know that he sees every moment of our lives, that he knows what we've done and that we will answer to him in the end. So that's the first thing. Faith sees through evil. The second thing this passage teaches is that faith sees through events. So Continuing on with chapter 9, starting with verse 1, we'll read to verse 5. It says, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same 
for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are fully are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing and they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Okay. So he's looking out at the world and he's saying, there's wise people and there's foolish people. There's people who do good. There's people who do evil. There's people that are hateful and there's people that are loving. And this is the evil that he's observing under the sun. This is the reality that he sees from the events of life. The same event happens to them all. And I think that he has in mind both good events, great successes, and great suffering. So he's looking out and he's saying, I see these wicked people who treat people horribly and they're living in mansions and their lives are happy and they're getting away with everything. I also see righteous people who are doing good, who are feeding the poor, who are clothing the naked, And they also live in big mansions and they also are doing very well. But I also see the wicked suffering and in pain and losing children and losing their spouses and dealing with tragic and catastrophic events. But I also see the righteous and the wise experiencing those same sufferings. And so here's what he's saying. I want you to see through the events of life. See, as Christians, we can often read too much into the events of life. So when things are going well, when our business is going well, when school school's going well, when our relationships are going well, we can say, I'm just experiencing the blessing of God. And so we read something positive into our events. We read the favor of God into the events of life, but we fail to consider that those who do not know God are simultaneously experiencing the same events. On the other side, we can also think that when we are experiencing deep and painful suffering, that we are then experiencing punishment for God. And so what we do is we start going through our last several weeks, our last several months, our last several years, or we go back to that one sin that we've committed. And we think about that and we think, well, because this horrible thing is happening in my life, God must be punishing me for that specific sin. What Solomon is telling us to do is saying, zoom out, look at the events of life. The same event happens 
to everyone. And so don't look at the events of your life for either the favor of God or as punishment from God. He says, instead, the way to see through the events of your life is to see that your life is in the hand of God. That God has purposed your life in love. You're not going to see this in events. You're going to see this through his word. And so let me walk through how this has looked in my life over the past couple years and even culminated yesterday in my life. Okay, so yesterday was the two-year anniversary of the death of my son, Jude. So he was born in February of 2018 with a congenital heart defect. He lived for five months and three days until July 11th of 2018. And so yesterday, my family and I went to visit his gravesite. And here's how we did that. We had a Dairy Queen gift card with $19.23 left on it. And so we went to Dairy Queen, told our kids, we're going to celebrate two years of Jude being in heaven. And so we went and we let everybody pick the candy that was in their blizzard. And we all got blizzards and we drove over to the gravesite. And then I got out my phone and we loved the song when Jude was in the hospital and after he died called My Lighthouse by Rend Collective. And so I took out my phone and I pulled it up and I set that phone on top of the grave And then we danced and sang at the grave of my son, Jude. Here's what we didn't do. We didn't read the event of his death as punishment from God. Instead, we interpreted the event through the lens of God's word. So one scripture that became very precious to us throughout the time where he's in the hospital and after he died, was this passage in 2 Corinthians that says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. So what we believed is this event, this horrible suffering, this negative event is in the hand of God. And even though it looks like punishment, even though it feels like punishment, even though it's horribly painful, we are going to choose by faith to view this event as if it's the best thing that could have possibly happened to us because it is in God's hand and we are his children and he loves us. And so because we believe that, We say, darn it, we're not going to go by his grave and act like the world's over. We're going to bring some ice cream. We're going to play some music. We're going to dance and we're going to talk about heaven. That's faith. You see through the events of your life. You see the hand of God. You see that the good things and the bad things are from the hand of God and that they are all flowing from his heart of love. And these first two points 
really find their culmination in this last point. If you don't get this last point, you're not really going to be able to receive the reality of these first two points. And it's this, that faith finally sees through earning. Okay. Ecclesiastes chapter nine, verses seven through nine, say this, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Is there a deeper human longing than the longing to be approved of? We all want those people in our lives that are most important to us to approve of us, to tell us that we're okay. And more than that, to tell us that we matter, that we have worth and that we have value. But the world has really only come up with one scheme to get approval. And I would call that scheme the performance mentality. So the performance mentality says, you can get approval if you perform well enough. And this is the doctrine of our culture. If you will live up to these performance standards, then you will be okay. Then you'll matter. Then your life will be actualized. Then you'll have righteousness. Then you will be right. And I see this longing in our society for righteousness, to be right, to be on the right side of history, to believe the right things and to do the right things. And that impulse is good, but it gets perverted when you think that the way that you get approval from God is through your performance. Okay, so we see this on the radical left right now, right? If you tweet this, if you say this, if you march in this, if you believe this specific thing about monuments, if you are passionate enough about this, then you will get our approval. Then the mob will leave you alone and you will no longer be condemned. We also see it on the radical right. If you're pro-life and nationalistic and you have no socialism, all capitalism, then we will approve of you. Then you will be in, you'll be part of the right group. And so both groups are seeking to establish righteousness to get approval. But in their seeking righteousness to get approval, you can see the vitriol from both groups. Because when you seek your righteousness through your own performance, you have to condemn those who don't agree with you. And so what we see right now is that both the left and the right in our country are ministries of condemnation 
What I mean by that is they're just throwing grenades at everyone. And what I'm telling you is if you're trying to live for one of those groups approval, you will never get it. You'll never get it because you can never do enough to get anyone's approval whether it's a political group or it's a parent or it's a spouse or it's a child, it is never enough because God made you to be righteous. And righteous is not on a sliding scale. Righteous is either a yes or a no. And what we need to admit as Christians is that we are not righteous. And so here's God's declaration for those who will stop their performing and place their faith in God's approval. Listen to what the Bible says to us right now, us spiritual losers, us sinners, us people who can't get our acts together about racial justice, who don't care about pro-life enough, who can't keep our hands clean. And to be honest, we don't even want to obey God a lot of the time. God has already approved of what you do. Think about that. It almost sounds ridiculous. God has already approved of what you do. You don't need to do anything to get God's approval. The Bible teaches that God demonstrates his love for us as sinners in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God gives his approval to the undeserving, to the outcast, to those who can't perform enough. And the fruit of this sort of approval. So, so we accept this by faith. We believe that God has approved of us. And so we stop performing. And because we've stopped performing, one of the fruits of it will be this radical faith where we go out and seek to change the world. But that's not what Solomon's talking about here. He's saying it's that you're able to enjoy the simple things in life, able to enjoy eating bread and drinking wine. Everyone in our church can afford a loaf of bread and a glass of wine. And if you can't, I'll buy it for you. Okay. You can drink a glass of wine. You can eat a loaf of bread and you can say, thank you to God for your life because God's already approved of what you do. And then he says, okay, in this Christian life, when, when you have the smile of God, when you know that he loves you, you're even going to have time to care about what you look like. Okay. The Bible actually in this passage, it kind of makes us lean in on caring what you look like. Look, look what he says. And then you'll laugh at the shirt that I'm wearing. He says, let your garments always be white. Okay. What, what's he saying? It was difficult in the ancient world to get your clothes to be white. That took a lot of scrubbing. That took a lot of care. If you've ever been to a third world country, I spent 40 days in Africa when I was picking up my adoptive kids from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And what blew me away is that these women who lived in abject poverty had some of the whitest clothes 
that you'll ever see. It was, it was like they were bleached. It was amazing. And I just asked them, how did you get your clothes so white? And one of the ladies said to me, you just keep on scrubbing. What's he saying? When you have someone's approval, it's like every single day is a date with the person that you love the most. It's like God is smiling down on you. And so it's not that we throw in the towel and say, forget about the world, forget about my life. It's that we actually care about life because we are approved of by the God of the universe. He, he says, you're also going to have time to sort of put your work aside to sort of put your performing aside, whatever you place your value and your identity in, you're going to be able to put those things aside and you're going to be able to be present with your wife or your husband. And you're going to remember that you love them. That's one of the diseases of our American culture right now, isn't it? That we can't put our work aside. And I think part of that is because it's not just work. It's our God. It's the way that we're trying to get people to love us and to approve of us. And so when you have God's smile, when you already have approval, when it's not based on your performance, when you're home, you can just be at home. When you're fr with your friends, you can just be with your friends and you can just be yourself and you can relax and you can stop performing because you have God's approval. Here's what I want you to think about right now. I want you to just imagine that you're in the place where you tend to try to perform to get your value. Maybe for you, it's at work. Maybe for some of you, it's at home and you're picturing yourself with your kids right now. Maybe it's actually playing some kind of sport or doing some kind of activity. But whatever it is, go to this place in your mind where you are working hard to try to get approval right now. And just imagine that you're sitting in that place and you're anxious and you're stressed out and you're trying so hard to do what's right and you're hearing that voice of condemnation and Jesus just comes up beside you and he lays his hand on your shoulder and he says, hey, you want to go get a drink? I'm like, what? No, I've got work to do. I've got, I've got lots of things to do. And he says, come on, we're having a party. And he, gra he grabs you and he, he takes you with him. He grabs you by the hand and you walk out the door and, and you go down the street and you go into this house and there's just this big table set and there's drinks and there's people and it's fun. And, and Jesus is smiling and he's not mad. And he's saying, this is what I want you to enjoy right now because you have God's approval. And if that seems like a far-fetched story to you, I want you to read the gospels. I want you to just go back and read the gospels. You know, there's just these fishermen who are working and you imagine they're performing. They're trying to get approval or there's tax collectors or there's zealots. Those are like the social justice warriors of the day. And Jesus just says to them, come follow me. Just come follow me. And he takes them 
into both places where they're on the front lines doing really hard work. But more often than not, he takes them into people's houses to sit down and they're reclining at tables, having meals together, and they're not doing anything that seems that important. And yet it is very important because they're living an entirely different kind of life, a life that is not for God's approval, but a life that is from God's approval. And when we have God's approval, we can relax. How can we know that we have God's approval. There's all different places that we could go to in the Bible, but let me land in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. It says, for our sake, he, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So I said before, The way that our society says that you get righteousness is you perform. The way that the gospel says you get righteousness is by faith. And so Jesus came to perform your righteousness for you. Jesus was 100% righteous. If you asked him, are you perfect? He would have said yes. Everyone else in human history has to say no. And then this perfect man goes to the cross. And yes, he was killed by Roman soldiers. Yes, he was killed by the Jewish mob. But more profoundly and foundationally, Jesus was killed by God the Father himself. So why would God the Father pour out his wrath? Why would he punish his perfect son? Because in Jesus, God was punishing us so that, you see the passage, we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, he puts on our dirty clothes and gives us his clean clothes in exchange, so that we have the approval of God, not in ourselves, not because we're righteous, not because we can claim that our hands are clean, but because Jesus paid the price for our sin and now clothes us in his righteousness. And because of that, we can now receive our life as a gift from our good heavenly father. We can live under his smile, even though we're still at times full of fear and our past is littered with failure. We can know that God loves us that he approves of us, that we have to do nothing politically or socially or morally to earn his approval. And because of that, actually, paradoxically, paradoxically, what happens is we begin to live the best lives because we're like a child who has the approval of their father and their father gets them up every day and says, you can do it. I believe in you. I love you. You are my son or daughter. So let's walk in that life. Let's push back against our culture, which says, do more, do more, do more, do more. And let's live under the smile of God this week. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for giving us a lens in your word to see through this world and to see 
the hand of God, to see that you are not mad at us anymore in Christ, but you actually approve of what we do, that there's space in our lives to enjoy the good gifts that you've given us. There's space in our lives to delight in being your children. And I just ask that we can relax, have a great afternoon, enjoy our lunch, be thankful for what you've given us because you're our good heavenly father who sent your perfect son to die in our place. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.